Welcome to Voices of Santa Clara. Having a good idea doesn't get you done. And if we'd hit those, there would have been an explosion. We would have died, obviously. Scholarship should cultivate the virtues. Worry more about, am I searching for what I should be doing next in the world? Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Voices of Santa Clara podcast. I'm your host, Gavin Cosgrave, and I'm now a senior at Santa Clara University. And today I'm bringing you the first episode of the 2019-2020 school year. And it's a big one. I'm talking with Provost Lisa Kloppenberg. As Provost, Lisa is in charge of all academic affairs, including all undergraduate and graduate schools like the business school, arts arts and science, engineering, and then graduate programs like the School of Education, the law school, and more. Prior to her role as provost, Lisa served at the dean of the Santa Clara School of Law. From 2001 to 2011, Lisa was the dean of the law school at the University of Dayton in Ohio, where she received national recognition for her lawyer as problem solver curriculum. Lisa received her bachelor's and JD from USC, and after graduation, she clerked for Judge Dorothy Wright Nelson of the U.S. Court of Appeals, who was one of the pioneering women in the field of law. In this conversation, we touch on what Lisa does in her role as provost, how she spends her time to be congruent with her long-term goals, and what students can learn from alternative dispute resolution. We also touch on some bigger philosophical questions around uh, the law and the legal system itself. So how does the law need to adapt to keep pace with changes in our modern world? And you'll also hear some ways that Santa Clara's law program is on the leading edge of innovating in new fields such as internet law and in programs that help create a more just and fair world in the Jesuit tradition. One final note before we dive in today, I recently got Voices of Santa Clara to be on Spotify, so you can now listen to the podcast there. I know sometimes the Apple Podcast app doesn't work super well, and people like to have their music and podcasts all in one place, so this just gives you another option, another way to share with friends and family. So yeah, uh, that's about it for the intro. I had a lot of fun with this conversation. Lisa is really smart and has great answers to all the questions, and I think you'll enjoy. So thanks for listening, and here is Provost Lisa Kloppenberg. Great. Well, thanks so much for joining me today, You're very Lisa. welcome. So to start out, um, a, lot of, a lot of people have heard um, the term provost, right? Mm-hmm. But I don't know if a lot of people know what a provost actually does. So what, what do you do? I think most provost? people don't know <laughs> what a provost actually does. Um, so it's funny when I tell my family, they are like, what? What are you doing? Mm-hmm. So I'm in charge of the academic side of the house really now. So all the graduate and undergraduate programming. So that's everything from the College of Arts and Sciences, School of Engineering, School of Business, but it also covers the graduate programs like um, Education Counseling Psychology, the Law School, and the Jesuit School of Theology. Hmm. And as well, some of the centers like the um, Markula Center for Applied Ethics and Miller Center uh, report to me. So it's a, a thrill to work on those kind of interdisciplinary issues too. Yeah, yeah. So on a on a day to day basis, like what 
what types of projects or things are taking up your time? All kinds of things. So shared governance is a lot of it. After this, I'll go to an hour and a half meeting on shared governance. So trying to work with all the different committees. There's faculty, staff, student parts of our shared governance system. And I would do a lot of work with the faculty part of that. And then um, we have a big STEM project going mm -hmm. on, the big Sobrato campus. So there's a lot of academic work related to mm -hmm. that. How are we going to share labs or research space? What are do we want to do in research? So that all has to come from the faculty, and the deans really have to, to uh, take charge of that. But we, in this office, help them work together and help them try to you know, formulate their vision, see what the needs are, mm -hmm. try to help them get the resources to support it. So mm -hmm. um, STEM's one part of it. Did a lot this summer around the arts in terms of mm -hmm. some of the exhibits and the opportunities that we have here for community engagement with the arts. Mm -hmm. um, and that was wonderful, too. So it really spans a, a broad kind of range of topics. Mm -hmm. And each day is different. You know, some days it could be out meeting with funders who want to support things on the academic side of the house. Some days it could be listening to faculty or staff or students. Father O'Brien and I are going to do a series of town halls, which mm. should be really fun. Mm -hmm. So we started that at convocation, and um, we just really want to be out there with the people, very transparent and clear about what we're doing and why we're doing it. Mm -hmm. So I'm excited about that. Yeah, yeah. With, with so many options of projects and groups and things to work yeah. on. How do you decide uh, what's important, what you want to focus your time and energy on? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so some of it, of course, is set. There's certain meetings I need to go to, right, mm. with the trustees or with uh, this part of faculty um, affairs or academic affairs and things mm. like that. So some is established. And then I do, I keep a copy of um, Father O'Brien's four priorities for this mm. year and yellow bright paper on my credenza so that every day as I'm filing my papers and pulling files out for meetings, I can see that and be reminded of it. I also have my goal statement on my desk. And then about once a month, I try to do, okay, what are my big, not just the day-to-day -day mm. meetings, but what are the things I need to think about for the future, strategic mm -hmm. items. And so I always try to match up my list of what I need to do with the goals and priorities. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's that's cool. And that, that makes a lot of sense. Like, what, what, what do you think a student could could learn from that or, or I'm, I'm kind of thinking about your right your position of, of leadership right and a student might um like it might just be their their life their schedule mm -hmm. their uh priorities that they're in, in charge of but yeah like what are some some lessons you've learned or principles you try to implement in in leadership yeah. that could be helpful for students and so some of this is probably related to ignatian practices mm -hmm. of reflection and so i try every day to kind of look at okay what brought me joy? What, what what was difficult? Where could I have done better? And then what do I want to do tomorrow? So some of that really relates to, even as a student, I think you're so busy with classes and maybe work and extracurricular activities that you probably don't very often take time to think about, okay, what was I excited about this mm -hmm. semester? What did I really look forward to? And so, um, I do a lot of journaling where I, I like to write. And so I, I many days write in my journal. And then you go back and you look at that. And over time, you start to see, okay, these are the activities where I really found a lot of life 
and joy and mm-hmm. things to look forward to. And these things were just a drag, <laughs> you know, so should I keep doing it? Maybe I have to, maybe I have to keep cleaning the dishes or something like that. But maybe there's stuff that, you know, I could substitute out. I've been on some boards, for example, mm-hmm. and you're asked because you're a leader or because you're female and, you know, I have to think about, okay, is that board a good use of my t- limited time, you mm-hmm. know, and on this earth? And so um, I guess, and, and I'm pretty anal, you know, my mom said I used to write little to-do lists when I was five years old. <laughs> so that's just me. But for me, these lists and things help keep me kind of centered on what's important and what the values are. Mm, yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, I, I'd also love to touch on your uh, career path mm-hmm. up to this point. I know you've spent most of your career in, in law. Sure. And so yeah, I'm wondering, are there any, um, are there any key moments that helped you decide you wanted to pursue law? Yes, um, some re- really key moments. So I grew up, you know, relatively poor, lower middle class. My mother had not had the opportunity to go to college. She couldn't even finish high school because she had to go to work to support an immigrant family. And uh, my dad did get the opportunity to go to college and become an engineer, but never loved education. It was actually my mom who kind of pushed education. My dad was like, go to city college. I'm like, no, thank you. And so um, I had some good teachers in, you know, elementary and high school that encouraged me to kind of, you know, pursue my interest in writing and things like that. And um, I went to USC in L.A. thinking I'd do broadcast journalism. Mm-hmm. And I still do. All, I love all the public speaking and mm-hmm. media work and everything. But while I was there at SC, um, journalism in English, I met one of my teachers, uh, he was an adjunct, you know, at USC communication school. And he was a lawyer who defended the LA times. Mm-hmm. And so it was the first lawyer I'd ever met. I think I was a senior in college and he, you know, worked with me for a number of weeks. And he said, Lisa, you should think about going to law school. Mm-hmm. So that was something I really had not thought of before my senior year in college, but I had had some good journalism internships at mm-hmm. CBS in LA and CBS in London. And I could see that the people five or six years ahead of me Mm -hmm. were kind of bored with their Mm -hmm. jobs and disillusioned and they wished they had gone on to graduate school. So a couple of reasons, I think both intellectually, I I knew I wanted that challenge. Mm -hmm. And then I wanted to get married and have a family. And that was hard for women in that era. You know, you'd have to move from town to town with the journalism job and not really be able, you couldn't blog at home, for example. Mm-hmm. You really had to follow the college football team. Often you started out at SC um, covering college football. I like I like football actually a lot, but you covered actually high school football mm-hmm. in Texas. And so um, law school was a way, I think, to postpone that decision about what I really wanted to do in life. And mm-hmm. it also turned out to be this great intellectual challenge. So mm-hmm. I really loved law school, even though mm-hmm. I had no idea what I was getting into. I had like three jobs to make my way financially, you know, mm-hmm. first year of law school. So it was tough, but I met some, again, I met another great mentor there who kind of directed me. So I met um, a woman, and I can show you her picture. I keep it on my desk, but um, Dorothy Nelson had been the dean of the law school at USC back in the 60s and 70s. And at the time she was dean, there was only 
for five years, one, she was the only female dean mm -hmm. at an accredited law school. Mm -hmm. Only female. So she was a pioneer in so many ways. And her field, I took a class from her, her field was conflict resolution. Mm -hmm mediation, arbitration, negotiation, ways to resolve disputes without going to court. Mm -hmm. um, it's kind of ironic. She became a federal judge <laughs> about the same time that Je uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg did. She's one of those pioneering women on the federal bench, too. But she spent most of her academic work and her teaching and her life really dedicated to trying to get people to resolve disputes more peacefully. Mm -hmm. So, for example, if you've got two engineers fighting over a building project, it's much better rather than a judge or an arbitrator telling them, here's what you should do. They're the experts. Mm -hmm. you know, usually, whether it's custody of children, the family knows what's best for those kids and the grandparents' schedules and all that. Mm -hmm. So you leave the decision-making where possible to the people who are kind of most invested in it. Mm -hmm. So that's what I learned from Judge Nelson. And she was a great role model because she had kids. She was married to a state court judge, very happy mar marriage. They were very religious people. They were mm -hmm. Baha'is and leaders in the Baha'i Church in the United States for many decades. So a lot of our beliefs resonated like around equality for all people and mm -hmm. access to justice and trying to resolve things peacefully. So mm -hmm. anyway, Judge Nelson turned out to be this huge influence on me. Mm -hmm. And because I got lucky enough after her class to spend a year clerking for her, which is like mm -hmm. an externship after law school for a year. Um, they're very coveted positions. And she then became this lifelong mentor to me. Mm -hmm. So anytime I was thinking about a job change or, you know, have another child, you know, she was a great source of advice and comfort and hope. Mm -hmm. um, and in fact, I'm leading a panel at USC, my alma mater, next week. And the president of USC is going to do the introduction. And then I'll mo moderate the panel with Judge Nelson mm -hmm. and um, all the other former living deans of the law school. Mm -hmm. So I'm um, talking about their work and how they shaped the school and all of mm -hmm. that. So um, that my path to law was kind of very academic in a way. And then I did practice for four or five years before I went into teaching. Mm -hmm. And the practice for me was a good way to get some experience, but I never loved it. I was mm -hmm. never, you know going to be partner and, you know, all about getting the clients or anything. It was great training to teach, you know, and to be able to be useful to my students. But it wasn't anything that I, I was really doing it, pay off my debts to get some experience, but not really, you know, to say, for example, if you knew you wanted to be a criminal defense lawyer or a human rights lawyer, you really had that passion. You know, I went to a sophisticated large firm in Washington, D.C., and I did very interesting work, but it wasn't the kind that filled your soul. Mm. So uh, mm. it was kind of short while my husband was in law school and while we started to have babies. And then uh, we were happy to come back to the West Coast and get into, I got into teaching. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Thanks for that. Yeah. That it's overview. a long answer. No, <laughs> no, I, I appreciated it. I'm, I'm wondering, you, you brought up the alternative dispute mm -hmm. resolution, right? And I'm, I'm wondering what, um, what someone who's not interested in law could learn from yeah. that process of 
conflict resolution. So it's you, there are a lot of ways it's used in business, it's used in construction, mm-hmm. it's used in you know the family courts, even the non-lawyers in family court, like the sociologists and social workers, all, mm-hmm. uh, there's a lot of uses of it. Um, so I think there's some general principles that apply. The biggest skill for conflict resolution mm-hmm. is active listening. Mm-hmm. So you're trying to listen both for what the person says the content of it, but also what are the like emotions that are coming through? So maybe I hear that you're really excited about your new job, mm-hmm. or I hear that somebody's really frustrated with their situation. So you're trying, you know, to listen. What did they say? What did they not say? What is the emotion that's really feeling that? And then you repeat it back to them. It's pretty simple. And you try not to do that in a way that makes them feel like you're just parroting them and being condescending. But instead, let them know that you heard them. You know, I hear that you're really frustrated by this course schedule. And then maybe I have to explain the rules that here I can't, this is a policy I can't change. Here's the reasoning behind it, right? So there's just some really basic skills in conflict resolution to try to get people to de-escalate and to step away a little bit from anticipating the counter-argument. Like, you know, mm-hmm. in a political debate, the idea is that you're really truly to be open. That other person may have great ideas about resolving a conflict, right? Mm-hmm. They People just shock you. They surprise you. I've seen so many situations where people have built up enmity and real aggression over the years. And if they had only talked to each other or had a neutral person to talk to and find out what did they really want, mm-hmm. what did they really care about, it might have really saved a lot of time and money and grief for people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, those are those are all great. And uh, you, so since you spent a lot of time thinking about educating um, future l- lawyers, right? Like, w- what are some of those key skills that lawyers need, or, or m- maybe ways that, um, what, like, things you've tried to emphasize in yeah. law curriculum that's maybe different from the standard right. law curriculum? Yeah. So when I was at Dayton, I was dean there for ten years, and Dayton's a very large Catholic university in Ohio. Um, we did the lawyer as problem solver mm. curriculum. So the idea was to, number one, give everybody some exposure to these kinds of skills around active listening, um, problem solving with clients and things like that. So whether they were interested in high tech mm. or um transactional work or other things everybody had some basic skill level then they also everybody did an externship Mm -hmm. Um, so they got out in the real world and and got some good experience tried to figure out what it it helps you to know what you do or don't want to do like my Mm -hmm. externship at cbs told me that's an interesting life high profile life but probably not a good fit for me Right. Mm-hmm. And so uh, the other thing, everybody had to do like a capstone course, like engineers and business often has capstone courses where you work to put together a problem. And it's not just one discrete subject. Like there was a course on um, how to develop a shopping mall. So they mm-hmm. had to learn zoning and financing and negotiation and real property stuff. And that was just one example. There, you know, so we have many different kinds of capstones. So I think some of what I was trying to emphasize 
was conflict resolution skills, problem solving, mm -hmm. which is one of the major skills employers say that law lawyers need, but also those kind of concrete, practical, bridge to practice things, which mm -hmm. make a lot of sense for professional school, mm -hmm. right? So here at Santa Clara, we've also really tried to look more at competencies. What are the five things that lawyers in Silicon Valley say are missing, that they wish they had in those new lawyers coming out of law school. And so we've done a course called Critical Lawyering Skills. They mm. do problem solving, and they also do things like working in teams, and they come up with a professional development plan. But it's very concrete during the first year to get them ready for that first job or externship or something like that. And that's really valuable for students who come straight into law school without a lot of work experience. So those are a couple of the examples of kind of what I think are important in terms of training law students. And, and I guess one reason I really love being at a Jesuit law school, much like a Marianist law school, that was Dayton was Catholic and Marianist, it's because you train the whole person, hmm. right? So we talk about the head, the hands, and the heart. So the analytical skills, they learn a lot in first year. The hands are the clinics and the externship experiences and putting all that together. And the heart is that formation of identity, judgment, hmm. ethical reflection, all of those things that come along as well. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. And and how, how would you say that the profession of of lawyer is is changing you know maybe especially in relation to where we are in silicon valley at, at santa clara yeah here people want to get the deal done <laughs> they want to be quick <laughs> they don't want to waste a lot of time on litigation so it's really important you're always going to need some litigators for the criminal courts and mm -hmm. selected areas of practice maybe even you have a samsung apple dispute that has to go to the Supreme Court and get a precedent set. Mm. Although I'd argue often, almost all those business cases would have been better if they'd been resolved by the parties earlier mm. on or with a neutral, like a mediator or something like that, because they just spend years and so much personnel time is wasted. Those people could be developing the next iPhone, the next new gadget, and instead, you know, they're spending time with lawyers talking about what happened in the past. And mm -hmm. so um, I think we've really tried to expose our students more broadly to kind of those skills. You've got to learn some of the basics of evidence and all that for the bar exam. Mm -hmm. But really, in terms of your career, there's so many emerging areas like um, there's a whole field now at the mix of business and law um, where it advises big companies on how to spend their legal budget. Mm -hmm. So do, what mix of in-house people, outside firms, when do you really need the expertise from outside mm -hmm. and what can you develop in-house? So it's called legal operations. Mm -hmm. And that's a fascinating and growing area. We have a grad running um legal ops now at Facebook, and we have a lot of people going into that area, which I think throughout the world will continue to be a growing area. We have more and more people going into privacy and mm -hmm. compliance. And, you know, as you see the impact that privacy policies have on people's lives or the disruption they can cause, right? A university or a company. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And along those, those same lines, like one of the bigger areas I have questions about is kind yeah. of how how all U.S. laws 
are are changing and need to change moving forward. You know, looking at the the Constitution, which you know so much is is based on, um, so much of our law is based on, and then moving it into mm-hmm. the the modern era where things like the internet are bringing right. up all these <laughs> new cases that you know people even one hundred years ago wouldn't have imagined. Right, so. Maybe to to start out, like, what are a few areas that you think about that are important to kind of make make progress on moving yeah. forward in in law? Oh, there's a lot of areas, and our our faculty has some amazing scholars who kind of are out there. They're really like people look to them, either in Silicon Valley to their blogs and stuff, or other ways to their scholarship to reform the law. So that's a big thing that universities do that students might not always see, right? Mm -hmm. Because you interact with your professor mostly in the classroom or the lab, but you might not see all the writing they do nights and weekends and all that, but they're trying to really shape an area of law or business or whatever. And so, for example, internet law is, as you said, the framers never thought of that, right? <laughs> and so um, there's Eric Goldman, we have one of the um, world's experts in internet law, and he's been really creative, not only on kind of, here's how I would change the law, like, he doesn't like the federal privacy law. He doesn't like California. He doesn't like European Union. You know, he, he might, part of a job of a law professor is to critique things, right? But to suggest ways for improvement, too. So um, Eric's very thoughtful around all of that. And what I really appreciate about him is it's not just his own scholarship. Then he takes that back to our students and says, okay, we need to do a privacy certificate. Okay, we need to do Tech Edge JD because this is really what the students need to know now. Right. Similarly, um, Sandy Magliozzi and others have started a um, master's for non-lawyers in compliance. I think compliance is a huge and growing area. And for us as a Jesuit institution, there's a lot of ethical issues there um, where you're really trying to create a better corporate culture. Mm. Right. On, you know, supply chain issues Mm. and uh diversity issues, lots of leadership and cultural engagement issues. So that's a whole nother field, which I think will really boom and develop and which we've been kind of leading the way there. Um, there's even things that you wouldn't think of, like fields that have been around a long time, like criminal law or torts or mm-hmm. contracts. Within those, there are areas that really need to be updated mm-hmm. to deal with how fast modern life moves and how complicated it is. I mean, think about family law. Um, We have an expert who writes on estate and probate issues for gay couples, right? So things that never would have been dealt with and aren't very well dealt with with, by the courts even now. So all of that's changing and evolving. And I think that's part of what makes it so exciting to be a law professor. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And like, how do you, uh, how do you weigh maybe two sides of one, like staying true to things that have been done in the past, whether that's precedent or the constitution or whatever versus, uh, like looking forward into the future and saying like, based on our values, this is how we think the world should be. And even though things have been different legally in the past, we want to make a change. Like, how do you balance those two sides? And I think that's very much um, a value-driven personal choice. You know, Mm -hmm. people might not like to admit it, but I think whether you think the status quo should be or whether you're looking more toward a future, and I would think a more just future, you know, um, that 
people have preferences. So I am more of a believer in a living constitution because mm-hmm. I look back at the framers and the first constitution, women were not included, right? African-Americans are not included, right? It was really for property-owning white males. And mm-hmm. so I just think that they gave us some beautiful ideas, but even those ideas, many of them like due process, equal protection, were at the 30,000-foot level. Mm-hmm. And so how do you make them concrete? You've got to take into account the circumstances of the day. Mm-hmm. Like what due process means for a married gay couple in California might be very different, right, than in a, a country or, uh, that didn't recognize mm-hmm. or still criminalized, you know, homosexuality. Mm-hmm. So I just think to keep the law relevant for people, to make the world continually evolving to be more just, we have to have more of that approach. Mm. Um, but that was probably very influenced by my teachers and my own mm-hmm. experience as a woman and all, all that kind of stuff, even writing about Judge Nelson being this pioneering, you know, for one of the first 14 tenured uh, law professors in the U.S., first female dean, one of the first federal appellate judges, you know. Mm. So I think her, I've just written a book about her, um, mm. her life, and that I think probably colors my idea Mm. of how the law needs to keep changing yeah 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 what would you say that the biggest uh, strength and biggest weakness of the current uh, u.s justice system are Uh, there's two big problems with it it's too expensive right and too slow and what that means is that most people can't get access to justice Mm. and the burden falls disproportionately on those who are poor. So, but even middle class people today can't afford a lawyer mm-hmm. for most things they'd like to do. So people don't write wills or they don't, you know, go to a mediator and resolve things mm-hmm. before they blow up unfortunately. So access to justice I think mm-hmm. is the biggest issue but it's got several components. Mm-hmm. Strengths, I think there's a lot of stability in the system. There is actually a predictability, not necessarily what a jury will do, but here's the law that's likely to apply. And that's helpful to guide conduct, right? Even at the university, we have to make decisions about, you know, lots of legal issues. And and so it helps to have like a set of laws to look to, like Mm -hmm. here's what's likely to happen if we do X and here's Mm -hmm. why. So it helps people predict behavior maybe and minimize risk, Mm -hmm. right? Or plan for risk. If you're a business or a person that decides to undertake the risk, then you go get insurance or you plan for it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Around the first point you made there on access to justice, like what are some ways that we can expand access or make it easier for people who can't afford legal options who might be more likely to need them. Right. The courts have gotten better about putting more free information online. Mm. For example, I think it's 70% now of people in California going through a divorce are not represented by counsel. Mm. So they've got to figure this stuff out themselves. Mm. There's a whole movement within conflict resolution called online dispute resolution. Mm -hmm. And we have one of the world's experts um, teaching for us at Santa Clara, Colin Rule, 
And he actually has helped design a system, for example, in the Netherlands, where a divorced couple can go in and online, you kind of get the forms and the guidance and you can resolve a lot of it. Now he's working in the U.S. on systems similar to try to make our courts more efficient and more people friendly, particularly in terms of accessibility for all. There are many, many needs in society, but we've totally underfunded the criminal justice system. And it's a real shame when you look at how disproportionately it is non-white people who are arrested and jailed and all that. So the Northern California Innocence Project at the law school, I think now 24, over um, 20 people have been exonerated. That is, they were serving sentences and they were truly innocent. And so these are, you know, there's still a lot of work to be done in the criminal justice system as well to take out all of our biases Mm. and to make it better funded and to make it fair. There's good people on both sides of the system, the prosecutors and the defenders. I know a lot of them and it's great system here locally. But it's just plagued nationally by these big structural issues. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, Santa Clara is huge on social justice, right? Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of different people in different fields working towards that. But I think, you know, sometimes maybe the the legal perspective isn't taken into account or just just people don't immediately think about um, going through the traditional systems, right? And more think about, oh, I'll like start my own project for this issue or that issue. But it's it's obviously the the structure that can make a really huge impact on, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. on people's lives. I'm so proud of all the, we have so many good programs at the law school doing things for victims of human trafficking, domestic mm-hmm. violence, for immigrants, for workers who have been cheated out of their pay. Um, it just, for those that are innocently convicted, there are all kinds of programs and clinics and opportunities where our students go out and faculty and staff too and do so much good mm-hmm. not only in the local community but even on global human rights issues mm-hmm. so um, I find that really inspiring that despite the problems in the system there's some really um, good smart people committed to making it better mm-hmm. yeah yeah awesome my last bigger question is uh, what so far in your career are you most proud of? Oh, that's point? a really hard question. If <laughs> um, you said in my life, I'd say my family, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, but in my career, I guess it's been, in a way, this ability, both at Dayton and here, to combine my faith and my work. So kind of the whole person thing, right? It's been intellectual. It's been spiritual. It's been practical, attending a lot of meetings, and hands on the ground. But it's also been very uplifting, I think, because I could put my faith and my work together. So I feel that through the teaching, through the research, through the administrative work, I'm contributing to making the world more just, gentle, and mm-hmm. sustainable. Yeah, awesome. Well, a couple shorter questions sure. to wrap up. So, so one is uh, just um, a week or two ago, we had a new class of first year students come in at Santa Clara, going through, you know, the experience of figuring out where everything is and how to manage their time. But excited about meeting new people. So, what yeah. what piece of advice would you give to a student just starting out at Santa Clara? I think they shouldn't be shy about 
meeting the faculty and staff. Mm -hmm. And I know they'd rather spend time with their peers, <laughs> especially at first. I might seem more fun, but there are so many lifelong mentors here, people who want to actually give you guidance or connect you with somebody in Silicon Valley. So don't be afraid to ask. Go find that person whose life or story or whatever resonates with you or whose ideas intrigue you and, mm -hmm. and get to know them and don't be shy to ask for help. That's one reason we're all here mm -hmm. because we really want to help the next generation. Mm, yeah. Um, do you have any favorite location that you've ever traveled? Oh, to? oh that's very hard. Um, mm. I'm kind of stumped there. there I love okay. travel so much, and there have been so many things. <laughs> I guess I'll say um, Canterbury, England, because that's where I mm. met my husband mm. on our junior year study abroad. <laughs> okay. So that's a very special trip. Yeah. Cool. Uh, if you could send a message to every person in the United States, what would you mm. want to say? Um, can we work together to create a more peaceful and fair society for everyone. Yeah, and, and finally, what does an ideal Saturday look like for you? Oh, um, so Zumba in the morning, and then I love to um, read, so if I can get time just out in the sun on the patio reading, uh, I am very, very happy, and um, at family time as well. So often we're watching a football game or catching up with um, our parents are catching up with the kids at night. So that kind of a, a thing, just a simple, pretty, it was some time outdoors in the California sun. <laughs> uh, makes me very happy. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for doing this conversation. You're very welcome. Good it. question. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening. You can read a partial transcript of this conversation at VoicesOfSantaClara.com. You can follow on the Apple Podcast app and now on Spotify or like the Facebook and Twitter pages. See you later.